0: Thank you, Mr. Speedle. you affirm that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do, yes. Thank you. Can you state your full name and where you're from?
1: Scott Stevens Spiedl from Annapolis Valley here in Nova Scotia.
0: Scott, I understand that back in early 2020, you had a very bad case of COVID. Is that correct?
1: Yes, that is correct.
0: And when exactly did you contract COVID?
1: It was about the first or second week of February.
0: What were your initial symptoms?
1: Initial symptoms were just normal flu like symptoms.
0: How did you know it was COVID, or how do you know?
1: Uh, after the first week, about when those flu symptoms went away, I started experiencing shortness of breath and chest pain. And also, I, of course, spoke with my family doctor about this and the testing at the time has just started and even in the mainstream media they reported issues with the testing including both false positives and false negatives and so she expressed concern with the effect the accuracy of the testing so that wasn't really relied upon and also upon one er visit uh the doctor who seen me he uh At that point, there's basically standard protocol to test anybody in the ER, especially if they exhibited these symptoms. And when the nurse started to prepare the test kit, the doctor turned to the nurse and said, don't bother with that. And at that point, I was consulting with him with my symptoms and along with the self-treatment I was doing. And he agreed that, you know, the treatment I was using was was good. He irritated that and that uh, he believed I had COVID as well.
0: So your family doctor and also an ER doctor assessed that you most likely had COVID. I understand that these symptoms persisted off and on over a long period of time. Is that correct?
1: Yes, that is correct.
0: So how many trips did you end up making to the to the emergency room with these symptoms?
1: Uh, the symptoms continued to get worse. Uh, shortness of breath, mainly. It uh, just I got to the point where I could hardly breathe, and so, yeah
0: at any point where you offered any treatment?
1: Not really. Like I say, with that one doctor in the ER, he basically just said keep using the self-treatment I was using.
0: What was the self-treatment?
1: I was using vitamin D, vitamin C, vitamin E, zinc, uh, honey and green tea and tonic water with lemon juice because at that point hydroxychloroquine was beginning to be spoken about as a treatment. And it appeared quite evidently that that was not going to be available to us here in Nova Scotia or myself. So through my own research and people I know in the military, they suggested tonic water as it contains quinine, which is basically a predecessor of hydroxychloroquine.
0: And did that help with your symptoms?
1: Yes, once I started putting those kind of meds and treatment to me, the, it still kept getting worse, but not as rapidly.
0: So did your COVID go away?
1: It did eventually. Uh, I did also receive a rescue inhaler on another ER visit, which was basically a shot in the dark by the doctor. Uh, That doctor had actually believed that I I was experiencing anxiety and gave me Ativan pills, sent me home with those. And I was so furious with that visit that I actually used the Ativan pills that night because I was so upset with how I was taken care of at the hospital.
0: So how bad did your, did your COVID get? This was going on for, for how long?
1: Uh, approximately four to five weeks from beginning to end. And, and it, like I say, it got to the point where I literally couldn't breathe. I only live about five, ten minutes from the hospital. And one night I ended up calling 911 because I didn't feel like I could drive that far in a car.
0: And after several months, what ended up happening to you?
1: you. I ended up... Having chest pain and shortness of breath slowly start to come back again off and on. And then I woke up one morning and I could hardly get out of bed because of back pain. Uh, the shortness of breath was not as severe like it was previously when I was very ill. So I wasn't sure what to make of it. I sort of just sat outside and launched air in the morning for five, ten minutes and see how I felt with some fresh air. And the pain was still there significantly. So I drove myself to the hospital that morning.
0: And what happened
1: at the hospital? Uh, They quickly identified one of the lungs had fully collapsed. So the doctor told me that uh, he would have to perform a chest tube, and he strongly stressed that my informed consent would be required for him to do the procedure. And so he did that, and shortly thereafter, he said that he wanted to send me back home with the chest tube. And I live alone, so I expressed to the nurse that I did not feel comfortable going home alone with this test tube. And at this point, there's a shift change happening in the ER, and the nurse had spoken with the doctor coming on shift about my situation, and he then shortly came to speak with me and said, No, we're not going to send you home. We're going to transfer you to Halifax for emergency lung surgery in two days.
0: So you were admitted to the hospital at that time in an, in the Valley? Correct. And can you tell us about your experience uh, in the hospital after that?
1: Uh, I was in the ER at Valley Regional for about three to four days. Uh, I was on morphine and meds at that point, so my mind was a little cloudy. I don't remember exactly how long it was. But on, I believe it was day three, uh, my eyes began to hurt, and I just by chance happened to wipe my forehead and it was just slime from sweat accumulating on my forehead. I did not receive any personal care at all. The only time a nurse or anybody came to see me in my stretcher bed was to provide morphine or medication. And I had to request a face cloth to to clean my face. And then, I believe it was the next day, because I was only there three or four days, they requested an X-ray, and I have the uh, since getting the, the physical medical records from my doctor, where it stated that they requested a mobile X-ray, where they bring the X-ray machine to your hospital bed or stretcher. And that's not what happened. The nurse was a student nurse. I guess she overlooked it or didn't know, understand the request. But she unplugged my chest tube from the vacuum line on the lo- on the wall, and then took me in my stretcher, ER stretcher to the x-ray department, the wait in the hallway alone, sedated, unplugged from my chest tube. And it was only a few minutes, but within that short time, I could feel in my chest like the air being let out of a balloon. And when the x-ray tech came out, he looked at me and I looked at him and I said, they just unplugged my chest tube and I think my lung just collapsed. And he said, Are you serious? And I said, Yes. And I was just, you know, on morphine, going, just didn't seem like a big deal to me at, the time, at that moment. So he rushed me into the x ray, did that, rushed me back to the ER. Then the nurse came, plugged my chest tube back into the wall. And then after about five or 10 minutes, what had just happened sort of registered in my mind, right? And I started yelling help me, they're going to kill me, I need a doctor. And after yelling that three or four times, it was only a few moments, uh, the ER supervisor and a respiratory specialist came to my side. They assessed me and realized the lung had collapsed and despite being plugged back into the vacuum line and it was not coming back up. So they decided that they'd have to do another chest tube, which is a very painful and horrifying experience really and they had to do another one because they had to use a I guess a larger diameter one so that they could create more vacuum in my chest cavity to allow the lung to come back up. After that I had a very serious conversation with the two of them about how that should have never happened which they agreed and it was shortly after then maybe an hour to actually before then the supervisor called a nurse a meeting at the nursing station and because of my condition, they had me right in in the section there in my stretcher right there in front of the ER nursing station so they could keep close eye on me. And so she called a, a meeting with the nurses after this happened and basically told them, you know, if if you have questions, have patience, wait and ask, you know, don't you know take your time instead of making mistakes more or less.
0: So when you were admitted, uh, Scott, to stay, um, you were told in two days you'd be going to Halifax for lung surgery? Correct. How long did you end up staying in the hospital before going to Halifax?
1: More than two weeks. And I just add to that meeting, when that was said and my, my situation was mentioned, the nurse who had unplugged my chest tube said, oh, well. And I almost flew off the handle, except immediately a nurse, an elderly nurse, clearly been a nurse for a long time, turned to her and said, you can't be like that.
0: Had you been hospitalized before, Scott?
1: Yes. uh, I actually have two autoimmune conditions, which put me at high risk for COVID. And one of those is ulcerative colitis. So I've been hospitalized two or three times for that for quite an extended period of time.
0: How would you compare the level of care you experienced and witnessed in this uh, visit that we just spoke about compared with in the past?
1: It was black and white difference, like, yeah, totally different. The, the, a lot of the, even the doctors, but mainly the nurses, they seemed scared or apprehensive of, of being near patients. It was very odd. And like I say, that was right at the beginning of all the hysteria and all the hype.
0: So Scott, you've had this horrible experience with what you and your family doctor and at least one ER doctor felt was COVID. Um, and it resulted in significant lung damage, correct?
1: Yes. I actually ended up having surgery on both lungs because the other lung was in the same condition on the edge of collapsing. And the surgeon had said that it took about 30 years off the life of my lungs.
0: So then when a vaccine emerged against COVID-19, were you eager to take it? No. Did you take the vaccine?
1: No, I did not. Why not? Uh, Well, numerous reasons. One being that I had... Survived COVID, and I believe natural immunity was longer lasting and more effective than the vaccine. I also had concerns about the safety of the vaccine even before it was rolled out. And also in the fall of 2021, 20, there when it was really getting rolled out, uh, I had two loved ones die shortly after receiving their injections. One within 48 hours of massive heart failure with no previous heart conditions, and the other one over the span of about a month in the hospital with all their organs shutting down and the doctors saying they didn't know why. So I was quite apprehensive to getting this shot.
0: How did you feel when provinces across Canada and the federal government started implementing vaccine mandates and passports?
1: I th- thought that was extreme. I'd even used the word tyrannical. I mean, it was a clear, extreme violation of our basic rights and freedoms, and it, it caused, I mean, we've heard numerous testimonies here, that the effect it's had on people's lives, their families, relationships, employment, you name it.
0: Are you familiar with the Truckers uh, Freedom Convoy that uh, went to Ottawa in January 2022? Yes. Can yes, you speak I... about a, a bit about your experience with the convoy? Yes.
1: Yes. Uh, I missed the convoy here from Nova Scotia to Ottawa in the first week due to continuous lung issues with long-term problems. And uh, eventually a few friends here from the province returned after being there and participating in the convoy. And at that point, I was starting to feel better. I was no longer short of breath, no more chest pain, and wanted to go. And they said, you need to be there because they knew my position and how I felt about things so they went back up and took me up there with them and we booked uh, reservations at an Airbnb for a week uh, of course at that point nobody knew how long it was going to last and that was it was probably the greatest time of my life especially after the, the previous two years there's so much love and joy is like cry and hug every single day a friend of mine who's had numerous friends who were truckers up there and one of them told me that when the first day I got there I was chatting with him and he said his eyes hurt from crying so much of just happiness and just relief and being around people and just a sense of normality again.
0: How long did you end up staying at the convoy?
1: Uh, Right till the very end that Sunday morning.
0: So you were planning to stay a week. Did it end up being longer than that?
1: Yes. Well, they—they they, like I say, we had reservations for a week, and it was time to go home, and they were heading back. And I told them the night before that I, I had to stay. It meant that much to me. And to that point, prior to that, a few days before, the, uh, when I arrived in Ottawa, the fencing was still up around the War Memorial, and I was there when the veterans took down the fencing and it, it wasn't like the media said it wasn't a bunch of protesters tearing it down it was basically all veterans people stood back and allowed the veterans to do it and they orderly removed the fence and, the, and stacked it neatly to the side and then negotiated with the police in terms of carrying out a watch duty at the memorial to make sure nothing happened to it because of course at that point the, the police were quite Quite lacking resources in terms of men on the ground. So the veterans agreed to, to take on that role.
0: Did I, you find that the media portrayal of what was happening in Ottawa uh, was accurate?
1: Not at all. Not at all.
0: No. So uh, reports that the protesters were racist, white supremacist, uh, hateful people. For example, uh, Ottawa City Councillor Catherine McKenney, in an article, and this is exhibit TR14. One article in uh, Ottawa City News, Ottawa City Councilor Catherine McKinney issued a statement on January 26, 2022, that stated in part, several members of this group are connected to militant, racist, sexist, and homophobic groups, and they are not here to only raise voices against vaccination mandates, but to also fuel hatred against the very fabric of our society. Do you feel that is an accurate characterization of what you observed and experienced at the convoy?
1: No, I would say that is the complete opposite of what... The, the atmosphere and the people that were there on the There's actually a, a very large presence of, of Christians, the religious people there, along with indigenous people. And leading up to that point, we had dozens of churches across the nation being burned and vandalized. And to have those two communities to come together was very... Nice to see, and there was people there from every walk of life. There's, and also the professional class. I met with numerous doctors and lawyers there. Uh, actually, at the warm well, he even spoke with a. Uh, he didn't say what sport, but he was clearly he was like seven feet tall, built, you know. And he said he was a professional athlete. I, I assume a hockey player. I sort of know the image. I played hockey for twenty five years, and he said he was fully supportive of what was happening.
0: Do you have anything to add about the people that you met at the convoy?
1: It was sorry. Uh, the veterans were, were like the heart and soul, largely of the of what was happening on the ground. That moment when they removed the fence, and I was there and helped a, a veteran remove the the flowers from the fence, and that personally, and to a lot of others, that was like the highlight of the whole event. And uh, they actually, because of long family history, uh, they took me into the fold of the watch duty afterwards and participated in the night watch duty, which was a very surreal experience, being in the, the nation's capital. And It was very quiet, dark, with the monument lit up, and yeah, it was pretty special. And Like I say, there's a lot of doctors, nurses, there's just everybody you could imagine.
0: What did this experience mean to you?
1: A great deal. Uh, Personally, I'm the kind of person I believe, you know, our, our forefathers, fathers and grandfathers, they've fought and died to protect and preserve our rights and freedoms. And here we were as a nation and across the world largely, sacrificing our rights and freedoms to save lives. So it was like everything was upside down.
0: Thank you, Scott. Those are my questions. I'll turn it over to the commission. Thank you for sharing your story today. I just had one question um, around the vaccine mandates and I was wondering if you ever asked for or obtained an exemption.
1: No, I did not. Thank you. I did not have a need for an exemption myself personally, but I did help others with the religious exemptions, providing them with the sources to acquire that. Thank you, Scott. Thank you very much. Oh, I could just say one more thing. When I was in, they moved me up to like a step down unit when I was in Valley Regional and I was there for an extended period of time and there was a nurse who came on shift after being off for a weekend. And this was about a week and a half into it. And she, when she came in, she said, what are you still doing here? And then we had a chat. She went to go find answers. And I could hear her outside the room, just outside the doorway right, speaking with who I assume is her supervisor. And she asked why I was still waiting. And her supervisor said, that was an inappropriate question for her to ask. And she responded by saying, if he ends up in ICU, it's not my fault. And if that nurse is out there, thank thank you. And please reach out to me if you can.